0: Welcome to the Larb Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm on my own in the remote studio today, because Medea and Kate are both waylaid with COVID. I'm sending them all our well wishes for a speedy recovery and a good reminder to all of you out there to stay safe as we head into the holidays and yet another COVID spike. On this week's show, I'm speaking with Dionne Irving about her debut story collection, The Islands. It's a beautiful collection that explores the experience of diaspora from multiple perspectives across Canada, the United States, France, England, and Jamaica. Drawing in part on her experiences as the daughter of Jamaican immigrants growing up in Toronto, Dionne's stories bring into focus the cleavages of language, identity, and racial experience that are central to the cultures of the Black diaspora. And through her characters' unique experiences, we see a nuance and difference that makes each account unique in a tapestry of shared, though distinct, lives. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and these stories half as much as I did. So, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Pleased to welcome Dionne Irving to the show today. Dionne is the author of Quint, and her work has appeared in a number of journals and reviews, including the New Delta Review and Lithub. She joins us today from her home in South Bend, Indiana, to talk about her debut story collection, The Islands. Moving across the United States, canada jamaica england and france the collection explores its female characters experience of diasporic dislocation that feeling of never quite fitting into the rhythms of either their adopted culture or their culture of origin dion's prose reveals in fact origin that foundational and orienting sense of where one is from as an eternally unsettled question for these female protagonists troubling the ways in which they find or make a home for themselves and the relationships they form with others. Welcome to the show, Dion.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So can you tell us just a little bit about how this collection came together for you? I mean, it clearly has a distinct focus on women living in various types of diaspora. But I'm also curious that you flipped what we usually understand as the normative publishing model of coming out with the story collection first and then doing the novel. So can you talk about maybe also what was different about writing short stories versus writing the novel?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think short stories are my passion. I have always loved stories. I love the short form. I'm really taken by the idea of the way in which juxtapositions can happen in the story form really close to each other. And so some of these stories are really old. They actually predate the novel, but I have always been so passionate about storytelling. And I grew up in a Jamaican grocery in Toronto. My parents owned one of the first Jamaican grocery stores in the GTA. And so that was my weekend pretty much every week growing up. And so you can tell the story. Shop Girl that's in the collection is pretty autobiographical, but... The education that also provided me was the fact that there were people coming in from all different islands, this beautiful mix of different Caribbean cultures every weekend in the shop. And I got to hear all those stories. I got to hear, you know, all those accents, all those voices. And so many of those stories were also about this idea of dislocation because it was often people buying the foods from home, but also sending things to family in different parts of the world. There was always family in England. There was always family in the Caribbean. And this sort of triangulation of empire that happens really resulted in this interesting mixture of voices and stories. And so I think all those stories have always lived inside me. And and I've always kind of returned to them again and again. And those are the stories that gradually made up the collection.
0: So I want to jump right into discussing Shop Girl. It was one of my favorite pieces in the collection. That story gives us a really interesting vignette in which a woman currently living in North America, it could be the United States, it could be Canada, is remembering growing up tending her parents' store in Jamaica, just as you obviously were. And what I find very interesting is that it's a place that she loves, but also a place that growing up, she couldn't wait to get away from. And it's that sort of ambivalence that she can't quite find a way to describe. You know, she eventually, or the narrator says, she both loves and hates the shop equally. So can you talk a little bit about that ambivalence that the protagonist feels, both loving a sight, let's say, of home, but also not wanting to be identified with it?
1: Yeah, I think that's the struggle in some ways of thinking about being the child of immigrants, right? There is this story of home and culture, and all of those things make up who you are as a person. And yet they're also really isolating and lonely. That when you live in a larger culture, whether that be in England, in Canada, or in the United States, that that culture somehow becomes subsumed by the larger cultural narrative. And I think especially with Black immigrants, that becomes a really interesting kind of story. I think especially in the United States, where you have a large... African-American community that has nothing to do with the Caribbean. But those are different cultural experiences. Not that there's not some areas of overlap or there are some shared things, but they are different. And often when we talk about the Black American experience, for example, it's monolithic, right? Mm -hmm. It is, this is what it means to be Black. But there's lots of different kinds of Blackness, right? And lots of different Black cultures and Black experiences. And so I think that idea that I think for me runs through all the stories in the collection has to do in part with this idea of loneliness, right? And the ways in which immigration and the process of immigration, whether you are the immigrant yourself or you're the first gen or second gen, puts you in this liminal space. And I think that is a complicated relationship and there's love there, but there's also the feeling of that I think we all have sometimes of wanting to be accepted, wanting to be part of the larger cultural narrative. And I think how we navigate that and what that looks like is complex and complicated.
0: Absolutely. And one of the things, just to reflect on what you were saying about this being a kind of classic immigrant story or experience, is that there's... Oftentimes a tension between the immigrant comes to the United States or somewhere, let's say, in the West, right? Because what the metropole is in relationship to the diasporic individual shifts depending on context, right? So in a Jamaican context, that could be London or it could be America. There's different kind of geolocations for that. Absolutely. But that movement always requires a certain kind of self-amputation because the movement is... Motivated, and we'll talk about the distinction between diaspora and dislocation a little bit later. That movement is powered by the desire to make a better life, which almost always means a more materially rich life. And so there is this kind of step between the immigrant family sets down roots in the new place. And typically there will be, like your parents' experience, there's a shop. And the idea is that, well, but our children will do something more than this shop. So there's always a, an interesting tension for me between the child of immigrants who both identifies with that kind of place that their parents made for themselves, but is also constantly being pushed both by themselves and by their parents to do something that's different. So there seems to be all these cleavages. And I just wonder if you could talk about how you have navigated some of those cleavages and how you try to explore those cleavages in your characters.
1: I think for me, that's part of what this collection's trying to do, is to give voice to that experience. Because I think that it's something, one, that feels very isolating, and two, that maybe isn't written about a lot. I think there are stories of the immigrant coming to the new place and what that experience is like. And there are experiences of ethnic Americans, but I think a lot of my stories sort of navigate the spaces between those two things and tries to figure out the multiplicity of complications that arise from those experiences. For me, it's really interesting because I am both the child of immigrants and an immigrant myself. And so there is this triple remove sometimes from something, right? I was born in Canada. My parents are Jamaican. I live in the United States. I'm not American. I am not Jamaican by want of passport, even though that is my culture. And I haven't lived in Canada for more than 20 years at this point even though I hold a Canadian passport. And so it is about living in all of these spaces sometimes for me simultaneously and and thinking about the ways in which the characters in my story are also kind of living between these spaces instead of maybe inhabiting all of them completely. I think the thing that's very difficult about immigration is the way in which it is like an alien experience in some ways. I think when people were enslaved or when people traveled across the globe, you left and there, the expectation was that you would never go back. Yeah, There was this sort of complete cutting off from the home, from the culture. And I think that did a couple of things, right? There was the idea that Then you had to make this new place, whatever it was going to be, whether you had been taken there by force or you had come there, you were going to have to make a home in some ways, whatever that was going to be. I think the interesting thing about immigration, it's sort of contemporary permutations is actually and maybe somewhat more psychologically damaging, right? Because you can buy the foods of home, you can text and call and visit home, but you're not home. And that's what it means in part to immigrate, right? Nowhere is home. The new place is not going to be home. And you can't go home again in some ways, right? Because you're fundamentally changed by the process of immigration. And so it leaves you with this kind of psychic homelessness. And in some ways, you sort of corral your children along into this experience with you, right? And that they also live between these two worlds and between these two places. There's a real sadness in that. And I think it's important to think about those stories and and how we tell those stories.
0: One of the things that comes up, you know, we'll shift gears a little bit to talk about the story All Inclusive, which I think addresses the particularly vexed position of the child of immigrants who is born outside of the country of origin. So in this case, you have a protagonist who's facing a very different sort of diasporic crisis, right? She's returning to Jamaica, which is her parents' home and her kind of cultural home, but it's a place she's only ever visited as a tourist. And she's fallen for this white poet who takes her there. And, in, and he impresses her, this is one of my favorite parts because I'm a huge Claude McKay fan, that he impresses her with a line from Claude McKay's The Tropics in New York. So this is actually one of my favorite, it's where I learned that the Jamaican word or term for avocados is alligator pears, <laughs> um, which is both so evocative of what that fruit actually looks like. But it's very clever to include here because that poem is about McKay's longing for his home as Jamaica as an expat living in Harlem in the early 20th century. And that feeling of real visceral sensory connection is something that your protagonist wants, but which is foreclosed for her because she was not born in Jamaica and didn't grow up there. And there's a moment where she describes this, I think, abject loneliness that you're getting at, which is, and I'll just read it here, she wasn't Jamaican, but at the same time she was. Because she was born in Canada, craft dinner, hockey night, and soggy boxes of poutine were as much home as the crispy skin of Escovitch fish ladled with vinegar, steel pan drums, and cornmeal porridge. They all felt like home, tasted like home, but were not home. She was a tourist too. Can you talk a little bit about what you wanted to bring into focus in this story and how a character like your protagonist here can navigate what feels like effectively a permanent homelessness? Is there any resolution for the kind of the dilemma that she faces?
1: no ultimately i think i think that that to me is kind of connected in some ways to what you said earlier about capital and the way that's inherently linked to tourism and inherently linked to immigration and those two things are twinned together i think that the thing that's really hard about Thinking about this idea of capital is the way in which capital can mean this rejection of home too, but it also means you can't go home. It's really interesting. Now I see people of my parents' generation and many of them who have lived away from Jamaica for, you know, 20, 30 years are now, you know, buying retirement homes in Jamaica and sort of going back occasionally. But it's funny, even with them, like they can't stay. They don't want to stay it's not their home for them either, right? For them, it's still a place to go on vacation. And so they get irritated with some of these things that are like absolutely a part of life in Jamaica because they've lived away for so long and they've forgotten or they understand a world in which sometimes those things are easier that have to do with capital. Yeah, And so I think that this is sort of the real st- struggle of some of these things is in maybe the most cliched way right money corrupts but <laughs> but there's a truth to that in that you know once you have had a life that is easy in some ways or a life that is divorced from some of the very essential difficulties of you know a country that is impoverished it gets a lot harder to go back yeah it's easier
0: You are listening to the Larb Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Dion Irving, author of The Islands. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation.
1: We have Peter Brooks on the line with us today. His latest book is called Seduced by Story, The Use and Abuse of Narrative, and Peter is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Peter, what book are you going to recommend?
2: Of all the books I've read over the last few years, I think the one that stays with me most is Mazem Engiste's The Shadow King, which is an extraordinary, almost epic telling of the Italian colonial wars in Ethiopia. It seems to me it's both almost mythic in its grandiosity and also very sensitive on the level of individual character. I just, I found it extraordinarily interesting.
1: How did you come to this book?
2: Someone gave it to me. I mean, a friend said you'd like this. There's an earlier one I read called Under the Lion's Paws, that it, about Hayley Selassie, but I think The Shadow King is even more impressive. And then the book I was talking about earlier when you were interviewing me called The Anomaly, translated from the French L'Anamolie by Hervé Lutellier, which is it's smart, you know, I mean, it's, it's a really intelligent mind and a book that shows how elastic a form the novel can be. And it still could be a genre, not only for storytelling, and he tells his stories very well, but also for thinking. I mean, it really is a kind of puzzle story, but in a very interesting way.
1: Well, if we don't take book recommendations from Peter Brooks, I don't know who we're taking recommendations from. Peter, will you tell us the titles of these two books again and the authors?
2: The first I mentioned was The Shadow King by Maza Mengiste. I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing her name right. Uh, She's an Ethiopian-born American novelist, M-E-N-G-I-S-T-E. And the other was Hervé Lutelier, T-E L-L-I-E-R, called The Anomaly.
1: Thank you so much, Peter.
2: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
1: We've been speaking with Peter Brooks. His latest book is called Seduced by Story The Use and Abuse of Narrative.
0: You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now, back to our conversation with Dion Irving, author of The Islands. What you're reminding me of is, there's another story that you have called Canal. And it approaches this question in a very different way. I mean, this is what I love about the collection. You have the kind of diasporic experience and you're talking about all the different varieties and constructions of that experience that can happen. And in this case, you're looking at the story of Pilar, who is a woman whose recent glaucoma diagnosis is connected quite beautifully at the beginning and end of the story to her exposure to tear gas as a child during the 1964 riots in Panama. And now Pilar left Panama in 1965 and effectively cut all ties with the country. And she, or the narrator, describes this being like many others who had, quote, gone to England or back to Jamaica, Trinidad, and Belize. Pilar had, quote, married, started over, and tried to forget. But history returns to her when she suddenly called to return to Panama for an ailing family member. And what strikes me about Pilar's story as being different is that it asks us in part to examine the distinction between a kind of, and I don't love this word, but an opportunistic diaspora, meaning moving to another country for increased economic opportunity, and what is more Pilar's case of a forced dislocation due to the trauma and terror of war or some other conflict. So can you talk about that distinction and what you wanted to bring out in Pilar's particular story.
1: I mean, in some way, I feel like poverty is also a conflict. You know, it's a different kind than war, but that it, to me, sort of pushes people into experiences where they might not necessarily want to immigrate, but there is poverty as a sort of another crushing kind of oppression as a way that moves people across the planet. For me, Pilar's story is very interesting because for me, it ties together. What to me is like, in some ways, both the stories of like diaspora and also thinking about the Western world and the new world in some ways, you know, the ways in which these ideas of slavery and capital and war are all intricately connected. The ways in which we forget that they're, is so much movement, too, among this idea of colony and empire. One of the things that's so interesting to me about Jamaica is the motto of the country, right, out of many, one people. And it's really interesting when you look at histories of immigration to Jamaica, and you see not just enslaved Africans who were brought to Jamaica, but there are laborers who come from ireland from china from india and so that jamaica is this really ethnically diverse place and i think we forget too how much movement there is like among the islands and from the islands out to empire and the ways in which that movement in some ways is not a contemporary thing that movement has been happening for a really long time one of the things I always tell people that they should do when they go to Jamaica is to go to Greenwood Great House in Montego Bay, which is the ancestral home of Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And I'm like, we need to think about the fact that this great Western poet doesn't have time to sit down and write poems unless somebody's cutting sugarcane in Jamaica. And so those things aren't divorced from each other. They're intricately connected. And that idea of war and genocide and slavery and movement and displacement are all very connected. Now, Elizabeth Barrett Browning never went to Jamaica, right? Mm -hmm. But Jamaica paid for her to be.
0: Exactly. And that is true of so many, especially of Elizabeth Barrett Browning's kind of contemporaries. I mean, there's also the way in which the way of generating life in the metropole, so in the capital of the colonizer, is produced entirely by the life and oftentimes the suffering of people that are thousands of miles away, whose experiences, this is another thing that I really love about your book, is whose experiences are so often occluded because they are both invisibilized in the culture of the metropole oftentimes, and specifically their labor in supporting the empire is invisibilized. Another thing, though, that occurred to me, and I was thinking about when you were talking about these vacation homes, is part of the problem of going back, and I think this is another one of the pains of diaspora. My husband's family emigrated from Cuba, you know, in the 1960s, and I think that there is the sense of, that has a whole other dynamic about not wanting to go back. Absolutely. um, That is about being kind of forced to leave in a particularly traumatizing way when, you know, his parents were children. But there's also the sense that, and I think this is a kind of tension in diasporic life and culture, where the origin life has already and always moved on, right? And so there's also this big chasm between not just even the language, you know, Pilar realizes that she now dreams in English, she thinks in English, and she doesn't, the Spanish comes to her haltingly, and that also estranges her from this place. But I think too, even if you do speak the language, you are going back to a place that is, has progressed 20 years or however many years long you've been gone. And so local phrases, catchphrases, things that are popular, things that exist, stores that exist, they're all gone, all erased. And I think about this when my mother-in-law will sometimes say, she's like, well, but it's not, I forget exactly how she puts it, but it's like, it's not there. Like the place that I was is not there anymore. It's not what it was. And can you talk a little bit about that in terms of your experience or the experience of your parents and their generation as something that also feels like a permanent and probably quite uncomfortable break?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that Whenever you've left a place always exists in a kind of time capsule that you've left it at that particular moment. But the place actually moves on, even if that's how it lives in your memory. You know, it was just when the queen died recently, I was telling somebody that one of my very earliest childhood memories is of my grandmother waking me up to watch Charles and I get married mm. because <laughs> she was a British citizen through and through. I mean, she came of age before independence. She had a British passport, the queen, and she got married the same year. The queen was very important figure for her in her life. And for her, it was very important for me as her granddaughter to get up and see the marriage of this person who was going to be the future king and Diana as the queen. So that... <laughs> was so fundamentally a part of her. Whereas my parents' generation, you know, came of age during independence, they have absolutely no use for the monogamy. Like, there's no love lost, there's no romanticism, but we think about the 60s and the 70s as these kind of revolutionary times in Jamaica. That's, you know, where we see the birth of reggae. We see this really independent idea of a unique Jamaican culture and a Jamaican culture that's specific to Jamaica as a place. And there's real pride in that and a real identification in that of something that is totally separate from being British. And in some ways, I think that also accounts for Some of this idea of diaspora in some ways, right? That I think when you look at like my grandmother's generation that immigrated to England during like the Windrush generation, there's less of this idea of we've got to maintain this distinct Jamaican cultural identity, even though that comes out, because there's the idea, well, we are all British and we are all, you know, here together, even though I am a Black Brit, you are a white Brit, right? We drink the same tea or whatever those those unifiers (laughs) of empire were. But I think that changes pretty dramatically, right? With my parents' generation, where they were still immigrating. They were still going to these sites of empire in some way. But there was this like desire of we're going to keep our culture. We're going to maintain it. We're going to keep it. And that's why I think, you know, I see my parents' store that opened up in the early 80s in Toronto, but there was a desire for that. The desire wasn't, we're just going to come to Canada and be Canadian, right? We're going to come to Canada and we're going to be Canadian, but we're also going to be Jamaican. And we're not setting that aside completely because we have left the home. But in some ways, too, there is this idea of home that also still lives in a capsule that I remember, you know, my parents going back to Jamaica with us and being like really upset at some of the things that had happened in Jamaica. But they had also left the island during a pretty turbulent time, right? In the mid seventies during the history. And so they had in some ways this fixed idea of the way things were during this moment where there is this push and pull between what Jamaica is going to look like post-independence, and this leftover idea of empire that was still lingering.
0: Did they ever feel, guilt is maybe a weird way to describe that emotion, but I think sometimes, especially when one has left a country in the midst of political turmoil, there is this hangover guilt and anger about if the way the country has turned out is not what you wanted, And then also the feeling that you weren't there kind of fighting for things or or fighting to make things different.
1: I think yes, but I think that's been like a slow burn on that in some ways. And the reason I think that is because in spite of the political upheaval, there was post-independence some like financial gains in the country and some real optimism about what was going to happen for Jamaica. And in some ways, Cuba (laughs) ended up being this real litmus point for sort of how things changed in Jamaica, right? Mm. That under the sphere of Empire of the United States, right? That when the Cuban Revolution happened, you know, there had been some socialist leanings in Jamaica and there was a real fear of that. You know, Marlon James writes about that really beautifully in in his book.
0: Just for listeners, that's in A Brief History of Seven Killings, which is an excellent, excellent book. book and its own kind of history of Jamaica during the 1970s.
1: Absolutely. I think that when my parents left, there was still sort of some of that optimism. Like, we can figure out what this new place is going to be. But that sphere of the United States really did have a very large influence. And a lot of those kind of socialist leanings, I think, ended up being eradicated. Whereas, like, I think people of my grandparents' generation would have been to Cuba. I mean, Cuba is 90 miles from Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Right. It's close. And so, whereas, like, post-revolution... Jamaicans don't go to Cuba, right. not because they can't, but they can't if they want to go to the United States. Right, And so exactly. that's, that's the problem. And so that really changed a lot of things in the country. And so when I say that guilt was sort of gradual in some ways, I think throughout the eighties, there was still this optimism in some ways that like we're figuring out what we're going to be as a country, we're just kind of getting our sea legs. And I think as time has gone on, As things have gotten more difficult economically on the island, there has still been some political upheaval that I think that slow burn on the guilt is like, well, we left, you know, and what that means. Because things didn't maybe turn the corner in the way that a lot of people had hoped that they were going to.
0: I want to turn now to the story Some People, in which you reflect on the impossibility of accounting for the diasporic condition, for that affect. It's a very difficult thing to describe because it is usually everything, everywhere, all at once, to borrow Mm -hmm. the title of that movie. (laughs) Um, And in this story, the protagonist, Carrie, is a writer who is trying to navigate not only her husband's financial success, which has changed their class status, and I should tell listeners, class is another serious undercurrent in all of your stories. And who has access to capital, who doesn't, how capital changes what one has access to and the selves that one has access to. But she's also trying to reconcile the gulf between her experience as the child of Jamaican immigrants and the Black American experience. And these distinctions often get elided, especially in white American discourse about race, that tends to reduce all the diversity of blackness or Latinidad, for example, to a singular condition or set of experiences that usually leads with the most quote unquote American of those experiences. So as you described earlier in our conversation, the kind of monolithic experience of the black American. And I just wanted to read something that I think gets at this really, really well. And this is how the narrator describes it. Carrie hadn't realized until she was a teenager and later than she should have that some people almost always meant American people, black or white. For listeners, the some people is what her parents call these people. Her parents were so different from her American friends, her lovers, her husband. It was difficult for some people to understand the experience of being raised in a Jamaican household while not being in Jamaica. The family, the community, the culture was a part of her life, but she wasn't Jamaican, not to Jamaicans, not to the people she grew up with. To them, she was black, just black. Some people who hadn't grown up eating breakfasts of ackee and saltfish, who hadn't had tablespoons of fish oil every morning, who hadn't swallowed fishy burps all day, couldn't understand. There was blackness, yes, but the cultural experience was too different. The thing holding them together seemed to be skin color and mutual oppression, but everything else felt different. It had been impressed upon her so deeply that she must remember that she was not black American." So there's so many different tensions (laughs) that are going on there. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about Carrie's feeling of isolation from white American friends, from Black American friends and from Jamaicans and how her parents put particular kinds of identity pressures on her to kind of remind her that she's not those other people.
1: Yeah. I think there's a real tension a lot of times between Jamaicans living in America especially and Black Americans. And I think, I'm not even exactly sure why that is. I think it is complex and complicated, but also rooted in a kind of tribalism that I think is sort of part of the human experience in some ways. And I think that that as a child of immigrants, Carrie as a character is navigating those two spaces. Her parents have this idea of, who and what she's supposed to be. And to kind of go back of what we were saying before, right, they have this idea of what, like, a Jamaican daughter looks like within the time capsule of when they left Jamaica, right? These are the things you're supposed to do if you are a good Jamaican daughter. Of course, the conflict is, right, not only is that sort of a dated model, but it's also has nothing to do with her actual lived experience of growing up in New York and navigating what it means to be a Black New Yorker. And so it is that, you know, to go back to somebody like Du Bois, right? It's double consciousness, but it's like triple consciousness, right? Because then there's this other part of herself that is about the larger white world, right? And how she navigates within that space as well. And so it is this constant juggling for her and trying to figure out how to be in all these different situations. And in some ways, you know, I think that comes back to some of the things that end up being a problem for a lot of women, which is the desire to please. And that's part of what she's got to please the family and what they feel about who she should be and her husband and what he feels that she should be. Within this private school that she's navigating what they feel she should be, you know, within the groups of white friends that they also have, what they feel like she should be. And in some ways she doesn't know, right? She's juggling all of these things simultaneously and not even sure, I think, in some ways, like when to feel hurt or upset or to laugh or to cry or because it's so confusing trying to navigate these multiple different selves and not having a center in some ways. And I think in in many ways, that's part of what this is, right? Who am I when I have to be all these different things to different people?
0: Have you wrestled with that question yourself?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think even within navigating academia, I mean, I think that that too is another thing. You know, I've worked in higher ed for a long time and figuring out what those things look like in different spheres. I think sometimes the idea is, is if you are the Black body in the room, you have to speak, you know, to the Black experience. And I can certainly speak about what it feels like to me to be black in America, but I'm also coming out of partly a different cultural tradition in terms of what those values are, what the you know foodways are, what the traditions are, and so in some ways too, I always tell people I'm still learning about America. You know, I've lived here a long time, <laughs> but I'm still navigating what that looks like and what that means, and it's always coming through a level of remove it's really funny. I have a seven-year-old son and like, I realized so much how school is such an indoctrinating force, you know, where he comes home and he is singing like the great American song. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> you're a grand old flag and the pledge of allegiance. And I'm like, this is a lot. But because I didn't go to elementary school in the United States, right? I'm like, oh my gosh, is that what this is? You know, that's there's this kind of indoctrination of nationalism (laughs) that I hadn't even thought about. But, you know, it's the first time in some ways that I'm getting up close and personal with like early American education and what that looks like and what it means to sort of be made into an American. And I'm sure there's some of... That in me, growing up in Canada that I probably can't
0: parse out. Well, that's what I was just going to say. Your son probably has a completely different experience of even the possibility of nationalism Mm -hmm. than you ever did, right? Because if you had maybe the Canadian system is not quite as, you know, rah-rah nationalism (laughs) as it is in the middle of our country. But you would then go home and you're having an experience that is more... Jamaican nationalism, but that's also not exactly you. So I guess we've talked a lot about the kind of feeling of dislocation or the feeling of disconnection, but let's kind of end, if we can, on a note that what helps you feel connected? Like, where do you feel home and where do you think these characters in your stories can locate themselves in a kind of
1: home? Yeah, in some ways I feel like The book itself is like the book my characters need, (laughs) like it's the book they would want to read, right, to locate them and make them not feel so alone. You know, I think that for me, books in some ways have been that for me. You know, I think stories and storytelling have been the thing that have really grounded me, you know, since I left Canada more than 20 years ago, I haven't lived in any city more than five or six years, which is kind of nuts but it also means that when people say to me where are you from I'm like um I don't have a good answer for it and so I think that for me that coming back to books and coming back to stories is in some ways a kind of home for me and, and a kind of place that I've been able to see like okay this isn't just an experience that I'm having And I'm really excited about some of the other books that are coming out that are telling not just the story of Jamaican immigrants, but the story of like first gen people. You know, Jonathan Escoffrey's book and Prince Shakur's book, uh, his memoir, that are thinking about the multiplicity of stories that make up the diaspora. I was telling a friend, I I watched the Steve McQueen series of short films, Small Acts, that was on Amazon a year or two ago. Oh yes,
0: about Windrush.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I just like sobbed through some of those stories because I had just never seen that story told before. I had never seen what that looked like to tell that story about the complication and the pain of immigration and the way that it wasn't just the story of immigrants, but what happens with these kids who who grow up in these kind of two places at once.
0: It's not quite as heavy as Steve McQueen's multi-part series, but I would also recommend to listeners Paddington 2, which does a very interesting job, actually, of talking about the immigrant and kind of colonial experience in London. Like there's very interesting cut shots of steel drum bands and stuff that are happening and what it's like to feel that kind of dislocation and connection. But this is a wonderful place to end, I think. We've been speaking with Dion Irving, author most recently of The Islands. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd really love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Jiha Lee. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Bladen.